Hello and welcome to the Five by your favorite review, five review board game podcast. There are a lot of reviews in here. Um, hi, my name is Travis Hill, and Mike reached out to me to see if I could put together five of my favorite games that the Five by has done in the past. And then he sent me a list of 300 or so or more uh, different games that the Five by has done, and it was incredible to just see the 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 variety. And so I chose five of my favorite games from this variety. First up is the classic Chicago. Express done by Mason. Next up is one of the quintessential solo games ever that's Onirim 2nd Edition put out by Sarah. Next up is probably my favorite Euro game of all time, favorite Uwe Rosenberg game, and that is Glass and Road by Mike. Next on the opposite end of the spectrum is the super mean food chain magnet by Lindsay. And to wrap things up, let's just be real honest, I need another train game in there, is the wonderful, wonderful Irish Gage being done by Meeple Lady. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Chicago Express. I don't consider myself into train games, but there are certainly some I've played that I like quite a bit, Martin Wallace's Steam being notable among those. I also don't think of myself as being into auction games, but there are several Kinesia titles that I like too. As you well know, we're a two-player household, so it's hard to fit train games into my life. Often auction-heavy, usually best with three to five players, and really, both Megan and I are largely indifferent to the theme. But I bought Chicago Express on a whim last year because it was on sale at an extreme discount, and I felt like buying something. It's a no-luck, stock-buying, company investment route builder about connecting the eastern seaboard with the American Midwest, which sounds hatefully boring if I'm being honest. However, Chicago Express is, in fact, a medium-weight economic puzzle that played very enjoyably for me at both two and three players. Now, the box says you can play up to six, but I can't imagine why you'd want to. Four players would be great, five would be manageable, but I think six would just be chaos. The Board Game Geek community poll on player count seems pretty down on this at two-player, so... I guess it depends on who you're playing against. We really liked it. I think, like a lot of highly interactive games, it's just very different at two-player versus three-player, but I enjoyed it just as much. So what's going on in Chicago Express? There are six different railroad companies, each of a different color. You're buying stock in them and then expanding them across the hex-covered map to increase their value. Occasionally, you get paid out dividends of the stock you own from all the companies, and the person with the most money wins at the end of the game. There's some really cool ideas worked into this design, especially the pressure gauges on the board that track player actions and also act as the round timer. On your turn, you can either expand any railroad you own a share in, up to three spaces, develop a space that has a train on it, which is basically putting a rail yard in a city or logging or mining out in the forest or mountains, or start an auction for a share of one of the companies. It costs a company money to expand, but the primary way for those companies to get money is from you, the player. When you buy shares in a company, that money doesn't go back into the bank, it goes into the company to be spent on a future turn. In turn, the only way for you to get money is by owning shares of a company that pays out dividends. This isn't exactly a perfect information game, as auctions in Chicago Express are really the only unknown variable, and even then, all the money is open. The key decision points in the game are, do I buy this stock, how much am I willing to pay, and how high is everyone else willing to go? Now obviously, there's a certain amount of on-the-fly math you need to do during an auction, which is most likely why I lost. The calculation of, pay X amount now, knowing that there are likely only X number of possible payouts left, is really a lot harder than I thought it would be, and while it's not what I would call punishing, In a two-player game, it definitely came back to bite me. It's probably worth noting that if you have a wild card in your game group, someone who likes to bid crazy amounts of money for things and doesn't care whether or not they win, Chicago Express may not be a good fit. You'll be well rewarded for cautious, steady growth and prudent stock buys. This is not an outrageous party game. This is a stare-at-the-board-and-do-some-math game. The round timing is really interesting in Chicago Express as it dictates a lot of choices. 
There are three red pressure gauges on the board, and every time a player takes an action, the corresponding gauge moves up one space. There are three auction spaces, four development spaces, and five expansion spaces. When two of the gauges top out, the round is over and all the companies pay out dividends. So on your turn, you must choose an action and move its gauge, but you may choose to actually take the action. So the gauges move no matter what, but if you can't or don't want to do anything, you don't have to. And this is the single most important factor in my wanting to play Chicago Express again. I never want to play anything where someone can go bankrupt and be out. I absolutely hate player elimination. Chicago Express gets around that by allowing a player to advance the game to a payday without punishing them for running out of money. The provenance of Chicago Express is, frankly, a little weird. It was originally published by Winsome Games in 2007 as Wabash Cannonball. Queen Games picked it up in 2008, retitled it, and provided all new artwork. There are several other Winsome train games they did around the same time. Kansas Pacific, German Railways, and Paris Connection. This is good for you and me, especially, because all of these games have been dirt cheap on Amazon over the last year. Chicago Express is around $15 most of the time, and the rest of them have both risen and dropped in price, sometimes bottoming out around $12. If you're at all interested in any of these very good train games, do yourself a favor and set an alert on one of the Amazon price tracking websites so you'll know when they drop again. Now, as to other winsome games, well, good luck. You can buy them on the secondary market, usually $75 to $100, or sign up for their Yahoo group, they don't have a website, and pre-order their set of once-yearly Essen releases, if you'll be at Essen, which sell out in a few hours after they become available. It seems like the following summer, they offer a few copies of the previous year's Essen sets, but good luck getting those either. But the Queen edition of Chicago Express that I have is very high quality, it has a relatively reasonable box for a Queen game. Still too deep, but that's my eternal gripe, isn't it? The illustration in this Queen edition is done by one of my favorite board game artists, Michael Menzel, and it does not disappoint. Now, I haven't mentioned a designer's name in this segment, because that's a bit of an open question. The box says Harry Wu, but the general consensus seems to be that both this and some of the other designers of licensed Winsome games are actually pseudonyms, possibly for publisher John Border, but that's just internet speculation. So who should buy Chicago Express? People who like economic games. People who like route building. People who like push-your-luck auctions. People who like no-luck strategies. And people who like spending an hour expanding a company across the country, only to have control of it snatched away by wealthier shareholders buying up your stock. I give Chicago Express 8 out of 8 shovels of coal into the firebox of the Wabash Cannonball. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram at Discount Compost. In the past year or so, I've developed a real appreciation for solo board gaming. I love board games, and I love being alone, so solitaire board games is a natural. Between dedicated solo games and multiplayer games with solid one-player rules, there's a surprising variety of solo board games out there and Onirim is a classic of the genre. Designed by Shadi Torby and originally published in 2010, Onirim's second edition was released in 2014 by Z-Man Games. The box says one to two players, but in my opinion, it's a one-player game that also has two-player rules. Onirim shines as solitaire, and that's how I play it. Onirim has a theme about a labyrinth and nightmares and doors and keys and moons, but really it's an abstract game. It has a theme the way a standard deck of playing cards has a theme. You use the symbols to identify cards, but the meaning of the symbols does not matter at all to the gameplay. They could be pictures of animals, or different kinds of cars, or superheroes, or anything at all. So, dreams it is. Onirim is part of the Oniverse, a series of games by Torby that are all primarily solitaire. Besides Onirim, the Oniverse also includes Urbion, Sylveon, Castellion, and Nautilon. They each have something to recommend them, but Onirim is the first, and the one I turn back to most often. To play Onirim, you draw cards from a deck, trying to collect eight cards that look like colored doors. 
You can claim a door either by drawing a door and then playing a card of the same color from your hand that has a key symbol. Or, if you play a run of three cards in a row of the same color, you can go through the draw deck and pull out a door of that color. Playing runs of cards is complicated by the rule that you can never play two cards in a row with the same symbol on them. There are only three symbols on the cards, moon, suns, and keys, so this restriction often comes into play. And once a run has been broken by another color, you have to start over. So far this sounds pretty easy, and it would be if not for the ten nightmare cards in the deck. When you draw a nightmare, you have to resolve it by discarding cards or by putting back a door you'd already collected. You lose the game by running out of cards before claiming all the doors, so every discard feels painful, and giving up a door doubly so. While the rules are simple and straightforward, the only thing about this game that isn't so simple is how do you pronounce it? I've heard many different pronunciations, Onirim, 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 etc. I used to say Onirim, but I recently learned that the name derives from the word oniric, meaning dreamlike or related to dreams. Knowing that, I think the pronunciation Onirim makes the most sense, but I won't judge anyone who pronounces it differently. A game of Onirim is 10 to 15 minutes of relaxing, calm enjoyment. And when you've played enough that it doesn't present much of a challenge anymore, the second edition comes with seven expansions right in the box. Each expansion adds a mechanism that makes the game a little easier, and another mechanism that makes it a little harder. You can add the expansions to the base game separately, or in any combination. I've found experimenting with the expansions as just enough variety to keep Onirim from feeling stale, even after countless plays. The second edition also includes a beautiful wooden meeple called Little Incubus, shaped like one of the shadow figures on the Nightmare cards. There are a couple of optional rules that use Little Incubus to make the game a little easier, but I never use it like that. I just take it out of the box and set it in front of me like a start player marker. I know a solitaire game doesn't need a start player marker, but what can I say? Little Incubus is adorable. My only real complaint about Onirim is the shuffling. Every time you draw a door and can't claim it, you have to shuffle it back into the deck. Every time you refill your hand after resolving a nightmare, if you draw any doors or nightmares during that draw up, you have to shuffle them back into the deck. It feels like you are constantly shuffling the deck. And these are not small cards. It's probably fine for a big person with big hands, but I'm a small person and I find shuffling Onirim a bit awkward, if not outright uncomfortable. I hate to think of trying to shuffle those big cards over and over with arthritis or a similar condition. Now, is there too much shuffling in Onirim? An old friend once told me that the true purpose of solitaire games is to waste time. From that point of view, the constant shuffling is a feature, not a bug. But if you're like me and prefer less shuffling for physical reasons, or even just find it tedious, there's an app for that. Asmodee Digital has created an Onirim app for both Android and iOS. The app is lovely, an excellent implementation of the game, and makes it easy to play Onirim in the waiting room before an appointment, in line at the store, waiting for your code to compile, anytime you're stuck with a few minutes to fill. You can even add a couple of expansions to the app for a nominal cost. And best of all, the app does all of the shuffling for you. Although I also love tense, challenging solitaire games, the ones I play over and over are lighter games that let me unwind and do something a bit more engaging than watching TV. As relaxing solitaire games go, Onirim is one of the best. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not escaping from nightmares through colored doors, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Class Road, the 2013 Uwe Rosenberg big box title from Z-Man, and later Mayfair Games, was the first Rosenberg that I liked. That may in part be to the cool resource wheel mechanism, the card play, or the fact that you are neither farming in misery, nor have to feed your family. 
But whatever it is, I fell for this game pretty hard and fast, despite the fact that I'm terrible at this game. In Glass Road, we are glassmakers in the Bavarian forest. Each player starts off with a fairly pristine forest playgrid with ponds, sand pits, and groves, and cards representing the 15 people you could possibly hire each turn. These 15 specialists with their two abilities each are how you obtain goods. At the start of each of the four building phases, each player chooses five specialists to play. Then for each of the three rounds, everyone takes their chosen card for that round and places it face down in front of them. Then in turn order, you flip your card face up and take one or two of the actions. If someone else has the card you chose still in their hand, they must play that card now, and both of you can only take one of the two actions on the card. This can really help the other person with the card, or it can really mess up their plans if it forces them to play a card earlier than expected. No matter what, this always hurts the person who is wanting to play the card that round. You collect the goods on your resource wheel, moving what you've collected as many spaces as necessary. The wheel is set up like a clock, with a minute and hour hand restricting the resources. You can only go so far with any one resource before it gets stopped by the hand because you haven't moved up your lowest resource. But once you do move your lowest resource, the hand automatically rotates to make your secondary resources, which are either glass or brick. It is useful to make these valuable resources, but they also decrease your amount of basic resources. So you have to be careful to make sure you aren't collecting more resources than you can use, and also that you aren't making bricks and glass when you need those resources to build buildings. There are three types of buildings you can build in Glass Road. Processing buildings, immediate one-time effect buildings, and endgame scoring buildings. Processing buildings you can use ongoing to convert one good into another. Immediate effect buildings are like gifts. You pay for and build them and then get that one-time goods increase. Endgame scoring buildings are the only way to get points in the game. You start with two on your board that give you points for any glass or brick you have at the end of the game, but it's not a very good return on investment. Usually I look at the scoring buildings first, and then plan back through the processing and immediate buildings to see what can best help me get to the scoring buildings I want. Except, regardless of player count, the building board only has four buildings of each type available for each building round. This means that over the course of the three rounds of card play within the building round, there is tight competition for available buildings, especially in the four-player game. So, Class Road is a one to four player game, and little is done to actually scale the game from two to four players. Two players is a minor change to the card play, in that in a two player game you are much less likely to get all five cards played, but in a four player game it's much more likely that the buildings you are looking at will be taken by another player. And in a three player game, the starting player gets distributed unevenly. Not that it matters much, but it still strikes me as a little off. I still feel like the game plays fine at all player counts, it's just something to be aware of. Glass Road also contains a solo option. This is a build as much as you can in the building periods given to you to achieve as many points as possible type game. You get 7 building rounds, but the trick is that you can't use the same cards in back to back building periods, and you can only use one of the actions on each card. There is a Harlequin promo specialist card that is for solo play that allows you to wipe the player board or to roll to get resources. It's pretty fun. Travis from Low Player Count sent me a copy. Anyway, if you do play solo, feel good knowing that you'll likely easily beat my score of 19. So, why am I so bad at this game? For two main reasons, I think. First of all, this is a relatively short game. I'm usually planning for multiple endgame scoring buildings with elaborate plans to get there, and this game cuts me off well before I finish any of those plans. Secondarily, there's a whole meta to this game about who is likely to play what card, so that maybe you can maximize how many you can play each building round and I'm terrible at guessing what other players are going to do. I also, as usual, have a few niggles with Class Road. 
First, while the art by Dennis Lohausen is fantastic and has many fun details like giants, dragon shadows, sharks, and other fun bits hidden in the tiles, unfortunately, as is common for these games, everyone is a white male. Although, I thought maybe the water carrier could be a woman, but my wife informed me that he is in fact a man. I also feel like for my taste there are too many building tiles. I just feel better if I could ever get a consistent game going, but I can't because the number of building tiles makes it so you rarely see the same combinations. So why do I keep Glass Road? Well, for a brief time I didn't. I thought Broom Surface would give me a similar feel with the card play, and I had been beta testing the app and had high hopes for it. But in the end, the app was sort of middling in my opinion. Maybe it's gotten better, but at the time it was just decent. And I miss the interplay of the cards and the resource wheel and the math of the building tiles for conversions and points. So I rebought it and have been happy to keep playing it ever since. And that's Glass Road. If you have any questions about it or have any history on the historical Glass Road in Bavaria that you wish to share, you can reach me on Twitter at Mike Risley. Hello, it's Lindsay here. And on this week's episode, I've been inspired to talk about Food Chain Magnate, the 2015 economic strategy card game designed by Joran Duman and Joris Wasinga, published by Splotter with artwork by Iris Dahana and Years Mott. It's a 2-5 player game with 120 to 240 minute duration. In Food Chain Magnate, you are the owner of a fast food chain in a 50s setting. The game isn't so much about the diner itself, but hiring and managing your employees and making as much money as possible by building, advertising and selling around the neighbourhood. The game recently appeared on one of my time hops. For those that aren't familiar, that's like social media memories. And that inspired some Twitter conversation, and now here I am. I've spoken about this game a lot over the past couple of years. I've blogged about it twice. One was a positively glowing review shortly after playing it. And last year's was more of a reflection on that. So I guess this is my final go around for Food Chain Magnate. It's a high strategy game and an absolute brain burster for me. And I personally need lots of mental energy for it. Splotter, who are known for their small periodic print runs, were publishing it again in 2016 and I really wanted it. I was not put off by hearing how difficult it is. I was definitely up for the challenge. I can honestly say after many games, I've only won it once, maybe twice. And I personally do find it extremely challenging. But echoing what Mason talked about last episode, it can sometimes be playing with the same person time and time again that can kill a game, especially when the other person has a knack for it and you don't. I got super frustrated with losing horrendously and repeatedly to the same person that I would actually like to play with someone equally poor so we can both bad it together. In Fuchan Magnate, you randomly lay tiles of a small town and start with one restaurant each, and you have to really pay attention to where you start because this can severely impede your progress from the get-go. You begin with a CEO and make initial recruits, and then you're away. The employees you recruit allow you to perform various actions. You can place different advertisements, build houses, and open new restaurants. You can produce food, pick up drinks, and train other employees that allow you to do more things. You can make profit at dinner time and you pay your employees wages thereafter. Where customers choose to eat is based on your product value and distance from each house. The training stages are outlined in the handy player menu. As I mentioned, this is a high strategy game, and if you choose the same path I did a couple of times, which is do whatever and see how it works out, it's not recommended. I then tried many different strategies each time. The problem is, is because it's such a beast to set up and play, you're most likely not going to be playing it week after week, which leaves me in the position of haven't played for so long, I'm almost relearning it. The clever part is that it's not particularly fiddly or overly complex with many stages and phases. It's just what you do in the two main phases that count, and it's so unforgiving. I find that if you make a bad decision early on, then it's really going to be hard to claw it back. Again, this can be frustrating for me, because it's at this point I can already see that 
that I've lost, which can be disheartening. But that's the nature of food chain magnate. And I don't think it's for the faint-hearted. But it is an absolutely wonderful game in terms of design. And I want to like it so much, but I did get to the point where I almost dreaded it coming to the table again. It's been so long since I did play, I kind of want to see if further gaming experience since then has taught me anything. But here's some things I did learn, so please close your ears now if you don't want to hear any tips from me. Get the milestones as soon as you can. The fridge card, for example, being able to stockpile food will save you continuously using precious actions to cook is a breath of fresh air. The quicker you hire and fire employees is key because it's the employees' wages that kill your income. If you can get discount managers early on, that's also preferable. And training up to CEO level as fast as you can is wise. The funniest strategy I've heard is just hiring waitresses, which is actually a really smart move because they give you income based on tips every round. But I think for me at least that would be a pretty dull game to play. Giving houses gardens and making sure you can deliver to them is a huge cash cow. These people will pay $40 for a burger. It's insane. Just consider everything so carefully and watch what other players are doing constantly. There will come a time when the food chain magnate gets brutal, like you have to be really mean, especially when it comes to advertising and stealing business from another player by using their advertising against them. What I found is that I can have a brilliant strategy in place, then another player comes along, changes the game up and totally thwarts my plans, meaning that I've made myself the town pizza queen for no actual reason. The cleverness of the game and the challenge lies very much in your network of employees and how to use them to your advantage, and I think this is something that most experienced gamers will be familiar with, if nothing else. I do love the appearance of the game, the box art and the little captions are wonderful, it's so well done and it does have that perfect 50s vibe. I dressed up in pin-up style to take a picture for Instagram and we played with 50s music on and you can really get into the spirit of it. I think it was pretty genius how the cards are, which is so pared down with simple black and white images, just use pretty pastel colours to make it really eye-pleasing. But just remember that beyond all those gleaming 50 smiles and adorable menu player raid and delicious non-edible food tokens, there is a hard as nails, tough as hell gamers game underneath. I was reluctant to discuss this game at first because although it's currently still for sale, prices are really high, but I did hear that Splotter are doing another print run, so if you dare, you might want to consider this one in your collection and be prepared to really hate other players for an hour or so. If you want to see and hear more from me, you can visit my YouTube or Instagram where I'm Shiny Happy Meeples, my website shinyhappymeeplesco.com or Twitter where I'm capital S, capital H, Meeples, capital C, Co. Bye for now. The types of train games I often play usually involves carving out an entire day of gaming for one single game. Our games last anywhere from six to ten hours and it's often uproarious fun looking at tiles, stocks, and bank accounts. So when I saw a train game that plays in about an hour, especially one that had a two-page rulebook, I had to ask myself, what makes a train game a train game? Little train pieces? Yes. A map? Yes. All kinds of stocks? Heck yes. Irish Gage, published by Capstone Games in 2019, is a three-to-five player stock train game. It was originally released in 2007 by Winsome Games, a small publisher of minimalist train games. The game is designed by Tom Russell, with artwork by Ian O'Toole. Irish Gage is by no means a heavy train game, but it still scratches the itch of a train game when you only have an hour to play, such as that time of night when game day is winding down, plus it plays nicely with five players. And did I mention that the rulebook is only two pages? To win, a player must have the most cash on hand, including the original value of their stocks at the end of the game. Since the game only plays for about an hour, 
every single action is extremely important, and for reasons I'll explain later, each game I played has been wildly different. On your turn, you can do one of four actions. The first one, you can build trains for a company whose stocks you own by spending up to three action points. The terrain type and whether the hex already has a train present determines the cost of the action points. Another action you can do is put a stock up for auction. This can sometimes get tricky, because you may get outbid on a stock you want, and then you may have wasted your turn attempting to auction a share. But stocks are crucial for gaining cash to buy more stocks later, as well as adding to your cash at the end of the game. The third action you can do is place a special interest cube in a town by selecting a cube from the bag to place onto the map. The last action you can do is call for dividends. This is by far my favorite action of the game, not that I'd recommend doing it on each of your turns. But there is something so supremely satisfying about choosing this action and screwing over an opponent that needs just one more turn to build out their network. When you call for dividends, you blindly draw three cubes from the bag. The colors of the cubes indicate which cities are paying out, and each company gets paid dividends only if their route connects to a paying city in a town or connects two paying cities. The amount gained is split among the shareholders. Whenever a player calls for dividends, the moment never fails to reenact the excitement and tension of gathering around a Las Vegas craps table and waiting for the dice to land. More often than not, during our games, chanting occurs, something to the tune of dividends, dividends. Since there are exactly 30 dividend cubes, 10 in each color, you can calculate the odds of which cubes could come out of the bag. When those cubes land on the board, there is both joy and disappointment. And seriously, this action adds so much fun and variety to every single game. Gameplay continues for about an hour, sometimes even faster if someone wants to run the clock quicker by constantly selecting the dividends action on their turn. When no more cubes are in the bag, by either through the calling dividends action or by placing them on the board through the special interest action, the game ends. Irish Gage comes complete with these sturdy cards for both the stocks and the cash, as well as these adorable tiny little train pieces that kind of look like candy. It's all packed in a slim box that's easy to transport. My only gripes are that I wish the board itself actually listed the four different actions, which is odd since they printed out almost everything else. There's even a large stock chart for those who need help dividing payouts, but we never use it because it's not hard to divide things by three, four, or five. Plus, there's a typo on the chart. You can't see me, but I'm physically shaking my head. And that's Irish Gage. Thanks, Capstone Games, for sending me a copy of this game. This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. You've been listening to the 5 by, your bi-weekly source of rapid-fire board game reviews, and proud member of the Inside Voices Network. Follow us on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or visit our website at 5bygames.com. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash 5 by Games. From all of us at the 5 by, thanks for listening. The 5 by is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Great Way Games, at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.